0: Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host Brian Grossman, and today we have a man just a really interesting episode lined up for you guys. Uh, we're going to be talking with Donnie Drager of the Comanche Ranch in Texas about an intensive 13 year study that he was involved in, uh, centered around culling and whether or not you could improve the quality and genetics of a free ranging deer herd through the culling process and just the the way they went about doing the calling, the intensity that they were able to do that at, and the results, some of the genetic studies that they done along with it, some DNA analysis. It's just, man, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, if you have an interest in deer management and deer hunting, uh, you're going to enjoy this this talk with Donnie. So, but before we jump on the phone with him, uh, as always, there's a few housekeeping items that I need to knock out here. First off, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Yeti. Uh, Yeti is a longtime corporate partner of the National Deer Association and one that we're proud to be associated with. And uh, we've actually just kicked off a little uh, mini sweepstakes here where we're going to be giving away 20 of the Yeti Hopper Flip 12 soft coolers in a limited edition Highland olive green. So these are good looking coolers. Uh, We're going to be giving away 20 of them. Uh, but you only have eight days total to get in on this. And actually, we kicked it off on Monday. So your your days are already numbered as you listen to this. We're going to cut it off on Tuesday, August 31st. So be sure to get your chances before then. And we'll draw a winner on Friday, September 3rd. Or draw 20 winners on Friday, September 3rd. So uh, be sure to get your chances on that. All the proceeds, of course, are going to go towards our mission of ensuring the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat, and hunting. So any support you can give us there will be much appreciated. Uh, I want to give a big thanks, a big shout out to all of you who have subscribed to the podcast. Uh, Those of you who have taken time to leave us a good rating on Apple Podcast, uh, left us a review. We actually have two new reviews that I want to go over real quick here because we really appreciate those of you who are taking time To leave us a written review that that helps us out tremendously. The the ratings and reviews helps more people find us on these podcast app uh, helps the podcast grow. So uh, any if you would take a moment to head to Apple podcast, leave us a a five star rating, hopefully, uh, and even a written review would be much appreciated. But a couple that have come in since the last the last episode. Uh, The first one is by Cut Patton, Cut Patton. Uh, It's titled World Class, and he says the NDA has upped their game in a big way over the past year. Content is exceptional, and they've made great strides in terms of transitioning the organization into a truly world-class, wildlife-focused nonprofit. This new podcast series is another giant leap in the right direction. Keep it up. You're making us all better hunters, land managers, and stewards of this amazing animal. So, man, thanks so much for that cut. Uh, we appreciate the kind words so that that means a lot, it means a lot to me personally and uh, to all of us here at the National Deer Association. So uh, the other one is by Split Tine two thousand two, and it says "Food plot miss busted." I have five one acre plots in northern Wisconsin. We've planted, maintained for over fifteen years, and consider myself fairly well informed on food plots. With all the time, energy, and money that's involved, I rarely miss the chance to learn more. And this podcast changed my knowledge on mowing brassicas, which I always plant and herbicides, expert speakers and entertaining. So thanks so much for that split brow time. Uh, we've definitely had some expert guests on here. Uh, not so much uh, expert uh, hosts, but uh, we try to get some, some good knowledge, knowledgeable guests on here uh, just to, to provide that information for you guys, help you become better deer hunters and, and better deer managers. So again, those reviews are much appreciated. Um, hey, as a token of our appreciation for all you new listeners, we've created a special membership offer and quite a few of you have taken advantage of that. And we appreciate that. Um, you can head over to our website again, deerassociation.com click that join or renew link. Cause you can, even if you're a current member, you can take it take advantage of this offer and we'll just tack an extra year on to your, your current membership. So uh, hit one of those buttons Use the promo code podcast, and not only will it knock $5 off your annual membership fee, uh, but we're going to send you a National Deer Association cap as well. So it's a a great offer. You're going to save a little money. You're going to get some cool NDA swag to boot. Uh, So we hope more of you will take advantage of that. But hey, with that, guys, we're going to jump on the phone here with Donnie and talk a little bit about deer culling and uh, whether or not that can improve the the quality and the genetics of your deer herd. All right, guys, I got Donnie Drager on the line. Uh, Donnie, how you doing,
1: Brian? How are you? Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Uh,
0: oh no, I, I appreciate you coming on here. Uh, look, I know you're uh, you're a busy guy, but I figured since you've uh, you know you've spoken at our national convention in the past, and your research has been the subject of at, at least one article or maybe more on our website, so. Uh, it seemed only fitting to get you on the new podcast here to talk about just some of the really cool research that you've been involved in around the practice of, of culling. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to diving into that. Uh, but before we do, can can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? You know, a little bit about your background and and maybe how you ended up as a, uh, a wildlife biologist there on the Comanche Ranch in Texas. Yeah, you
1: bet. Um... You know, I came about it pretty organically, I think, like most people do. My dad took me hunting at a very young age. I grew up in Georgetown, Texas, just about 30 miles north of Austin, dead center of the state, hill country. And and, uh, we always had ranches and deer leases and things like that growing up. And, you know, as a young age, I fell in love with the outdoors, just like many kids exposed to those scenarios do. And uh, and. You know, I always tell the joke that that, that by the time I hit high school, there was only two things that I really wanted to do in life. And one was play free safety for the Dallas Cowboys and the (laughs) other was become a wildlife biologist, manage a ranch. Well, as you can imagine, uh, scenario one took care of itself for me. So uh, I, you know, I I got lucky. A cousin of mine was getting his grad graduate degree from Texas A&M when I was in high school. And I tagged along with him during his research in South Texas, and uh, it just opened my eyes to what South Texas has to offer. And uh, even though I lived in this state, I hadn't spent any time in that deep, this deep south region. And I fell in love with it. and uh, it was a goal to uh, to return here at, you know, at some and manage ranches. and I Got my bachelor's from Texas A&M Kingsville and my master's from Texas A&M Kingsville, uh, studying whitetail deer. And my master's went to uh, Arkansas for a couple years and became a professional duck guide and managed a place for a private landowner. And then I went to uh, Michigan and worked for the sanctuary and ended up working for the guy who split off the sanctuary and started a, a company. I started another hunting operation called the Legends Ranch. I became the biologist for them and I stayed there for about two years. And then my professor, Dr. Charlie D. Young from AM Kingsville, became the headhunter for the Comanche Ranch when the current owner bought it and uh, was looking for a new manager. And i got, was lucky enough to get on the short list and even won the lottery, if you will, and got to, uh, got the job. And I've been here for 20, going a little over 20 years now. So on Comanche Ranch, and we're in between we're in between Carrizo Springs and Eagle Pass, Texas. That's kind of Maverick and Demick County, Texas, on that northern edge of the Golden Triangle that people talk about and hear about, and all that stuff and that lore that comes with that area. And it's been great. I've been, uh, I've been uh, blessed and fortunate and work with great people and work for a great family and uh, got to, get to manage a terrific property. So I'm very, very lucky.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. It's a dream job for sure. And, uh, you know, it's, it's no surprise to me that, uh, I figured that you had a hunting background. I was going to ask you about that if you didn't bring it up, but it's not to get too far off track, but it's funny how there just seems to be this common misconception among a lot of hunters in regards to biologists and researchers, how they just, uh, think they imagine you guys in, uh, you know, khakis and polo shirts sitting in an office somewhere or maybe a lab coat, you know, yeah. uh, just, just repeating what you learn from a textbook. And, and, mm-hmm. you know, with the, they don't realize that, that most of the folks, you know, and I have a wildlife background as well and and work for a couple of state agencies. Um, you know, most of the folks that you run into are passionate, you know, they were passionate hunters and out, outdoorsmen to start with. And that's what led them down that, that career path. So. Um, I think that's yeah. true. I think
1: most of my peers that i know uh, or you know came i think it's aldo leopold and i'm gonna get the quote wrong but it's something to do with hook and bullet and, and and how the how we got into the field and i think it's a appropriate way to get into the field certainly not the only way and just like any field there's this full spectrum i know people that have never hunted i've had employees that never hunted but um and and, and it, that's fine but it, i think it gives you an advantage i agree with you
0: But it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. But uh, like I said, I don't want to get too far off track with that. Let's let's dive into what I I had you on here for. And that's this this massive multi-year research project that that you were involved with there on the Comanche Ranch. Um, How did this how did the whole thing come to life? I guess how did this project get kicked off? Good
1: question. Um, I think it kind of without a doubt, we came. To this idea, because of Mick Alex and the King Ranch and Texas Parks and Wildlife, they had a uh, they had a project going on there at the King Ranch that was that took two five thousand acre pastures, one control, one experimental. They were all open range, and they took hunters around and shot as coals in the experimental and left everything alone in the control. And I'm very simplifying this for for speed here, um, but. And, and after, I can't remember, it was five, eight years, whatever that study was, how many years that, you know, they came to this conclusion that they couldn't see any effects of color. And we thought, well, you know what? That's a great study. We could do it better. <laughs> and uh, that sounded arrogant, but we, we, uh, we went to, uh, my, my boss and I, we went to uh, Parks and Wildlife and Dr. Charlie D Young at the A&M Kingsville. And we said, hey, we've got an idea. We think we can break this up a little better. Their technology is a little better. We could use helicopters to capture, you know, live capture these deer and look at them and all these other things, right? And we thought that, you know what, we could do this in a way that for once and for all, we could draw that line in the sand. You know, the way I always described it early on to everybody that we were getting into it with is that, look, if we're going to do it at such an intensity level that there will never be a question of, oh, did you go far enough? You didn't do this. You didn't do that. Right. So we, 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 we want to put all that to bed. And, and to and, and at the same time, you could, maybe you could argue at the end of the day, oh, well, it will still work if you do this, but there's no way that 99.9% of anybody in the world is going to ever get to the point and to the intensity that we did it and the way we did it, the resources and the land and everything just won't allow the majority of people to do that. So we kind of wanted to draw that line in the sand, saying if it can't be done this way, then what's the point of the conversation? And to be honest, we, we we spent a lot of money and time and effort on this. So we had great hopes that it that, that calling worked in the beginning of it. So it like, hey, if we do all this, we're going to have a better deer herd because of the end of it. And so that, that was the premise going in is that, you know, not only do we, do we kind of satisfy this urge that all of us had, and, and frankly, most deer hunters have to know this knowledge of culling and whitetail and what is the efficacy, efficacy of it, but what do we, uh, at what level does it take to accomplish that? And, and is it worth that? And once you hit that level, is it worth it? So that was the genesis of this, and, and we started with, again with Texas Parks and Wildlife um, for permits and for a collaboration, and and, uh, and and more importantly, the guys at Kerr Wildlife Management Area, uh, specifically Donnie Frails, who's now retired. Um, and, but and and then we had Texas A&M Kingsville, Dr. Charlie DeYoung was kind of the brains behind the designing the the, the experiment, and then Comanche Ranch, and so th- those three entities tackled this big project. Uh, and we, I, I'll leave that to you, but basically from there, we we hit the ground running.
0: So you, you kind of touched on it there, but w- so going into this research pro- research project, what was your perception of culling? Were, were you a supporter? Did you think at some level that yeah. it was going to improve the overall? You know, I did. I'll
1: admit, I admit that a hundred percent. I felt like, I, I don't think if I had this idea that there's no way in you, in heck it was going to work I don't think I could in good conscience, dedicate the resources time and effort that the family that that I work for put into this um to the project if I was personally convinced that that wasn't going to work I would have felt pretty guilty about that but I had this real optimism that we're going to do it better than anybody's ever done and and then we're going to I think we're going to see some gains because of it you know um, and, but on the other side of that coin would be Charlie DeYoung fully admitted. I don't think it's going to be work, but it's, I don't think it's going to work, but it's going to be a great experiment. The true scientist that he is, you know, would say that in our meetings, like Charlie, God, you're killing me. Why would you say that? <laughs> defund the whole thing. I mean, but, uh, but Charlie's just that way. It was like, oh, but it's going to be a terrific experiment. I don't think it's going to work, but it's going to be great. And so we, and then there was guys like Donnie Frails, the Kerr Wildlife Manager that were a hundred percent convinced it would work. I mean, just unequivocal belief in it because of all the research that Kerr Wildlife Management Area has done in the state of Texas. Some of your listeners may know that; some of them don't, but that's a very quick Google uh, search. And and some of that, <laughs> the irony now is what we've done to dismantle some of that foundational research that Kerr Wildlife Management uh, uh, has done. This study almost cut the legs out from it, from it, if you will, at least from when you take it out of a pen into a pasture it would be a good way to put that. So, yeah, I, I admit, yes, I, I not only hoped it would work, I, I, I had a good feeling that it would.
0: Now, set us up, I guess, on how this experiment was, was laid <laughs> out. Yeah.
1: yeah, so what we did, we had three areas on the ranch, and, and they're, they're large pieces of land here. We had a m- we had two experimental areas and one control. And the, the, the moderate area, I'm going to start with the uh, experiment number, ex, let's call it experiment area number one. And we, we nicknamed that moderate. And, and it was 18,000 acres. And the reason it was moderate is because, it, let, let, let me back up. So, I'm sorry, but uh, your listeners need to know how we catch deer. <laughs> so, we'd take, three, we'd take three helicopters up. And and, and we do this twice a year, and for about it'd be about three to five days a year, depending on when we were and how many deer we caught. And we the helicopter, there'd be two catch helicopters, one transport helicopter. So we'd set up in a central area of the region we were catching, and uh, and the two catch helicopters, those pilots were instructed to catch the first buck you see. Doesn't matter about antler size; just if you can identify it's a buck, grab it, bring it to us. They do that by net gun shot out of the helicopter, the guy would jump out, time up, and then the transport helicopter would come in, tie a rope to him and bring him to us. And, and we'd have a full team of people on the ground working up everything from, you know, op- the obvious things like age in him, scoring him, weight. We'd take hair samples, antler samples, blood samples, all these other things, DNA, ear notch for DNA analysis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So lots of data being taken in a very short period of time. We And then if and then we had these categories for each age. If in, in the moderate area for one and two-year-olds, uh, all of them that would be caught would be released. So, uh, and then the culling wouldn't start till the buck that captured would have been aged at three years old. So three and four-year-olds, if it had less than nine points, it would, it would be culled. So again, an, an eight-point buck and down at three and four years old would be culled. Uh, and then you go five plus is the next category, five years old and anything older than that had to be above 145 inches B and C. If it made 145 and one 18, it got to walk It got to run away. If it made 144 and 78, it did not. Um, so uh, that was that's the three categories. And that 18,000 acres a moderate area again. So huge acreages here, huge that we were trying to experiment on. And then the next one, we took a much smaller approach on the what we called quote unquote intensive uh, area. And the intensive area was 3,500 acres. And the reason we called it intensive is because we did call all the way down into the yearling age class. The yearlings that were uh, six point or less, excuse me, less than six points were called. So think about that. How often do you see a five point yearling and uh, which is pretty darn good yearling by most people's standards. It would have been cold in, the, in this uh, experiment, and it was cold in this experiment. So six points or more to live in the intensive pasture, which is or intensive area, thirty five hundred acres. The two year olds had to have eight points or more to live, and meaning a seven point two year old was cold. And then once you hit three four, it was the same as the other one. Uh, anything with eight points or less was called and, and then five plus had to be 145 or better to live. So the, all the categories. Come in. And then the final area is the control. It is what it sounds like. All deer all the time were caught, recorded, all the data recorded on them, and they were all let go. So the, uh, so that's your three areas. To recap, you had a moderate 18,000 acre area that did not call one and two year olds, an intensive 3,500 acre area that did call all the way down into the yearling age class and then a control that was all catch and release.
0: Before we go any further now, the way you were trapping these using, using helicopters, were you accounting for a hundred percent of the bucks in these units? I mean, were you actually oh, capturing?
1: I'm sorry,
0: Denver, go ahead. Oh no. I was just going to say, were you actually capturing and and tagging and collecting data from every buck in these units or just. A, no, a no, sub-table? no, no. <laughs> uh, I'm,
1: I'm with the many years of data i can answer this but at the beginning we didn't know that we never first off we never assumed we were getting 100% of the bucks no no, no. It, it, you know it was a sample every year we had a goal to get as many deer as we could in this x time period and those those numbers would go up and down with as fawn crops got bigger or smaller through those age groups i could literally tell you By how many five-year-olds we or four-year-olds we caught, how good that fawn crop was four years ago, you know, just by those numbers, watching them work too. But more importantly, what we learned is it really took uh, a a minimum of two years and around three to really what I, and this is a weird way to put it, but get your hands around that cohort. So meaning that when they were yearlings, you caught X percent of that age class, yearlings. And then by the time they got to two, they were two-year-olds that still catching the same cohort, moving from one to two, you probably caught 60 or so percent of them. I'm making that number up. But um, and then by the time they were three, you really did have your hands around. I mean, you, know, you probably were in the 80 or 90 percent of the range had you caught, called, or let go, one of the two in these, in these smaller, uh, in these areas. Now, so it really kind of took you three years to get your hands and control a cohort, even by this method. Those numbers I gave you are are kind of made up, but they they represent what I'm saying on how you approached and 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 got your got control of a cohort as it moved older in age class.
0: So, how many do you know roughly? How many how many bucks would you put hands on every year? Then going through this process,
1: you know, each year was dependent. Again, those phone crops are really and and it was also dependent on weather. I mean, we did this in. In freezing rain. We did it in hard downpours. We did it in a hundred degree heat and it was all relatively the same time of year. But after you do it for, well, we did this for third from 2006 to 2018. So, uh, okay. and, and so it was a long study. And I mean, to give you a number by the time we were done, we had caught right at 11,000 captures Oh wow. and, and, 11,000 captures, 11,000 lines of data. Um, What that, and that, and it was, by the time we were done, we were right at, you know, almost 6,000 bucks. I I mean, sorry. And so a lot of those were recaptures, right? So as the breakdown goes, um, we captured 5,447 bucks, 2,937 individuals, 2,510 were recaptured, and over a seven-year period, we culled 1,333 bucks. And, and actually, the numbers I just gave you were from 2006 to 2017, I'm sorry, 16, 10-year period. Um, so we had more than that by the end of the study, but that's kind of what we analyzed it on. And out of all that 5,444 bucks, an important note that we may get to, we actually assigned offspring to 963 of them. So we assigned them as sires for offspring that we found later, 963 times. And that was really groundbreaking and no one's ever done anything. So you have the, gen- you have the culling side and what it did do to the antlers in this study, but really to me, the more impressive aspect of the study is what we learned about uh, who siren who and what does it look like and what do those offspring look like. And and, and that's, that was really important.
0: Yeah. And I definitely, definitely want to dive into that. That was that was super interesting to me. Uh, but, but before we do, let's, let's kind of break down these, these different units that you've talked about um, okay. and, and kind of how things played out. Um, I guess let's start in the, the intensive one. You know, you've already kind of broke out what you were, ca- or what you were calling there. <laughs> Um, what were the the results? I guess with that one, how how did that intensive calling work out?
1: Well, <laughs> let's kind of go. to the start at the basics on that. We called for seven years, uh, and then we then we just captured. So we did this study for thirteen years, right? The first seven years we called, and then after that we hit a point where we decided not to call, and I'll, I'll, expre- I'll explain that why in a second. And so the next. Years after that, up to 13, we just caught and captured and let go everything on all three uh, areas, right? So let's start at the intensive pasture. In that seven-year period, in 3,500 acres, we killed 375 bucks in seven years. And that equated, and it it was vastly weighted heavily. I mean, the vast majority of them uh, were uh, yearlings, one-and-a-half-year-olds. Because remember, in that intensive pasture, they had to have six points or more to live. So out of that $375, 133 of them were yearlings. And that equates to a 94% yearling cull rate. It's devastating, to say the least. And so what we did, and look, you probably know it, I'd say most of your listeners are aware of some aspect of it. South Texas is a harsh place to grow up when you're a a white-tailed deer, or anywhere, a white-tailed deer, armadillo, or a human—it's a tough place to live. And uh, and so, we, and then you compound that by just hammering on a yearling age class. What we did, we created a. Uh, we I'll give you another number. In two thousand six, when we started, we counted seventy three bucks out of the helicopter, just a raw count out of the helicopter on that thirty five hundred acres. In two thousand and twelve. Six years later, after, you know, six years of calling, we counted nine bucks out of the, uh, out of the helicopter. It plummeted, right? Right. And so what happened is that we created this negative feedback loop in that pasture. You, you had a, uh, you had, you, you, you culled so many deer that you culled so many yearlings and so many deer that you skewed the sector each year the sex ratio was skewed towards the females. It was like one to one, one to two in the beginning. And it went from about one to six, one to eight. And, uh, and so we had, because we had a skewed sex ratio, we had late born fawns. Well, late born fawns tend to have smaller yearling antlers. Well, we were judging yearling on their antler size. And because we judge yearling on their antler size, the culling intensity remained high. And, and because the culling intensity remained high and you called so many of the yearlings uh, early on, and then you add on what Mother Nature had to take on her own when during droughts and coyotes and things like that. We really did. We really would. I like to call drove that herd, that buck herd into what, what I call a local extinction or was driving it towards. I mean, rephrase that. So. Um, that is why we quit after seven years of culling. You know, we uh, and, and, and during that time, the, um, the the we we know for a fact the conception dates went up. We were testing that in the spring and we had we harvest enough does to get average mean conception dates. Uh, during that same period, the uh, the culling, I mean, the average yearling Boone Crockett score uh, we know went down. During that time period, it's in a downward slope, which is opposite of what you would expect and hope in a culling program, right? A, a successful culling program. So right. that pasture is really interesting in that way. Uh, meanwhile, all the mature bucks in that pasture that did make it through, of course, they that cohort, they were really a lot better than, let's say, the control. I mean, they averaged about 140 inches average of anything five years old and up average at 140 compared to the control, which is like a 120, 122 BMC. So almost 20 inches bigger and better. So you certainly had bigger deer running around on average, but you didn't have uh, you weren't getting the recruitment because we just kept we kept so harshly on the on the on the young deer. Um, right. Yeah. So I'll let you interject there and tell me where to go next. I think that explains the intensive pasture.
0: Right. Do you think the difference in, in antler size between the two? I mean, was that genetic related, or was that just simply no, reduced competition question. for resources?
1: No. What that is is called a. It, it, we have a phrase for that. It's called a sculpted cohort. And the reason a lot of people get conf- one of the reasons, many reasons, why people get confused on why their their culling program they think is working is because if you kill Let's say, let's take a very simple example. Let's say I shoot every eight point I see. I don't care how, how often or what age it is, I'm going to shoot every eight point. Well, you do that for 10 years or five years, whatever, it doesn't matter. And, and then you come back to me and say, Donnie, I know calling works because I shoot every eight point I see and now all I see are 10 points. <laughs> well, yeah, but the lo- think about your logic because the only reason you see 10 points is because you shot all the eight points. It doesn't mean that you're producing Less eight points. See what I mean? It,
0: right. You, yeah. But
1: you're still, sh- you just shoot them and what you see. So what I mean by that is that we wanted to sculpt that cohort. You have to, right? In calling, you have to get your your standing crop, which is the deer that are out there right now. And you want the average standing, you want the average bunny Crockett score for, mature, for deer out there right now, the standing crop to be higher than what you started with. That's the only way, and they therefore we assume are more genetically superior, and therefore can pass that those more uh, attractive antler traits on to the next generation. And that's the first step in a culling program: is to get sculpt the cohort to where the standing crop has higher a Crockett score. We certainly did that. We accomplished that. We we see it through our data, but um, we did it at the expense and because we were diving all the way down in the yearling age class, we did it at the expense of recruitment and the recruitment plummeted to almost nothing and it was unsustainable. So if we could have kept calling for another three, four, five, hell, who knows, maybe even seven more years. And we would have had a deer herd left, but it would have been greatly skewed towards the females. And it would have been um, very, very limited in reproduction or new deer eligible to not be or that wouldn't be that wouldn't be culled and would make it through the culling. What we were seeing, what you would have hoped to see is a reduction of the percent of yearlings that needed to be culled. That would have showed you, oh, wait a minute. Now we've got something here. I used to have to call 69 or 94 percent of my yearlings. And now something magic has happened and I only call 60 percent of my yearlings and I have the exact same standard. But what we saw, Brian, and more importantly, is that percent of yearlings that had to be culled also fluctuated greatly with the type of year we were, ha- rain year we were having here in South Texas. So if we had a really great rain year, that number went down. More yearling bucks were above six points or more. If we had a hard drought, let's say 2011, 100% of the deer we caught were killed, 100% they were all just devastated by that rain or lack of rain. So, and which clearly isn't a genetic effect. It's it's a environmental response. So, we get harp on this one subject for 4 or 5 hours and I don't want to uh, I don't want to uh, dominate it on that. We still haven't even talked about the moderate. So, I'm going to let you direct me where you like me to go.
0: Okay. No, no, you answered my question there and that that makes sense. Even even though the quality of the remaining bucks was higher. They weren't producing higher quality offspring. Is basically what it boils down to. It was the, you were still having to call the same percentage of of yearlings year after year after year. So
1: yeah, and we have even harder data than that. That as maybe as we move on, I'll try to circle back to that, and we can prove that empirically through our data and through our genetics data. Uh, so so we we feel very comfortable in that argument.
0: Okay. Before we before we jump into the the genetic side of it, let's, let's talk about the, the moderate culling area. And this, I guess this area is more for those, you know, I know there's a lot of guys out there that say, well, you, you know, you, you can't tell a, a buck's genetic potential at, as a yearling, you have to let them get to, you know, three years old, and then you can cull the ones that need to be culled. So that, that was, this area was more for those, those type of folks. What Right. What and I was one of those guys, guys, I, I admit <laughs>
1: So, you know, again, yeah, it's the one and two year olds get let go and, and the three year olds, uh, we start calling there and it's 18,000 acres. And and to do some real numbers, we killed over a seven year period, we killed 908 bucks in 18,000 acres. And again, it, it was like there was, you know, one and two year olds are there's nothing there. And then as you got to the three year old age class, if you're looking at a bar graph of this, you know, it's way up high and then it trickles down as you get through the 8-, 9-, 10-year-old age class, right? And, but the, who took it on the chin at intensive pasture was the yearlings who took, it, took the punch on the chin, and the immoderate was the 3-year-olds, right? The first chance you could get. So 908 bucks of those killed in seven, in seven years. And, um, you know, it, 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 what was interesting about this place is unlike the intensive pasture where we had this quote-unquote sculpted cohort, where there was a dis- clear distinction in ba- antler Boone Crockett size of the standing crop and, and intensive co- versus the control area, there was no clear distinction between the moderate area standing crop and the and the control area standing crop. Meaning that we killed nine hundred eight bucks on eighteen thousand acres in seven years, and we didn't change the standing crop. We didn't sculpt that cohort to have. The, the remaining bucks to have a significantly higher Boone Crockett score. And we did this with capturing, I want to say it was six days a year in in that area with three helicopters, two catch, one transport, you know, hundreds of man hours, you know, uh, uh, ma- uh, huge numbers of deer being come in, come in on, on those time periods. And we still couldn't affect the standing crop. And what's really crazy is it remember this is still a hunting ranch and we, you know, we're, we're, we're hunting it during this time and I'm scouting it and I have guys that work for me at scout and film and all that stuff. And every deer we catch would get an ear notch for DNA sampling and banking that DNA later. And so you know when a deer jumps in and looks at it, I mean, it comes into your feeder or down your corn road or whatever. You're looking at it through the spot and scope. You see that ear notch. You're like, oh, he's been caught. Yeah, okay. That's the only physical element that we put on him. There, there, there were no, we did have pit tags, but they went inside the ear and they're they're about the size of a large red ant. Um, And and other than that, there were no physical tags hanging off of them. But there, you could look, see that ear notch and you go, oh, okay, he'd been caught. And what's crazy for us on the ground is more often than not, when a buck came out, you saw that ear notch. And so we. If you would have asked me, I'd have bet really good money on, yeah, we've, we've affected this herd. We have, we've sculpted this herd because we've got our hands on it, if you will, enough to really change, change the Ben and Crockett score. But yet when we collect the data, the data showed that, no, we didn't. So my gut feelings on the ground uh, uh, were completely wrong compared to the data and that one still does is that one's still really hard for me to settle in my brain. I'm lucky I'm a I'm a data believer type of guy. But uh, uh and I and especially when it's my own data, but uh, it it it's really hard to settle that in my brain. So and and, and again that goes to why people believe calling works so much. I mean, if I if I think it if I think I was affecting it, how does the average guy Who's not taking empirical data? Um, how does he feel about it, and how is he? Of course, he he feels like he's going to die on this hill with that argument that oh man, I've 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 done that, I've, I've I've affected this herd in a positive way. So uh, the takeaway point from the moderate is that we didn't even we didn't even change that we didn't even sculpt that core. We did not positively influence the Boone and Crockett score of the standing crop, and if you can't do that, then Guess what? The, the, you're not going to genetically influence the next generation because you hadn't changed the first generation. So right. that that's that's the takeaway of the moderate.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, you guys are obviously you're you're calling this area way more intensively than the average, you know, group of guys on a, a hunting lease or a hunting club or or you know, are gonna be able to to get out there and, and do themselves do right. normal hunting.
1: And we even did some data on that. I mean, I compared us our culling intensity versus the King Ranch study, which they had hired guns and paid hunters and they went out and they did it. They did call by gun and ground only, but they they did it very intensely and and, and, and a rough get a rough swag if you will on that was that we were about eight times eight to ten times the intensity of the king ranch dollar study uh on our culling intensity so there was no question that we were we were uh effective in in that manner if
0: you will yeah well let's, okay let's let's dive into the what you've you've touched on a couple times here and and the thing that separates i guess your study or a big part of what separates your study from the king ranch one and that's the all the, the DNA analysis side of it. Um, what was, what was it? Walk us through that, that process, what was done there and, yeah. and kind of what you guys discerned from all that.
1: And this is going to be hard for your listeners because this is really a, this is such an easier concept to see, uh, graphs on and all that. So I'll do my best, but we're going to start with kind of what the, the definition of a breeding value is. Right. So, the breeding value is the predicted estimate of a worth of an individual's genotype based on its phenotypic values of its offspring's and relatives. So let's break that down, right? So genotype means I have a tall parents and I have the genotype to be a tall person, right? But phenotypically, for whatever reason, and there's a multitude of those, uh, I only made it. Let's I'm six foot, and let's say I only made it to six foot, but both my parents are six eight, whatever which isn't true, but nonetheless, Uh, phenotypic means that I'm only six foot, but my genotype, I didn't live up to my genotype, right? So phenotype here is antler display. Genotype is, is what those antlers, what was the maximum those antlers could have been is the best way to think about that, okay? And we measure that by looking at an individual's, all his offspring and his relatives. And we come up by measuring and we get this predicted estimate of breeding uh, of a breeding value. So what we did is we created breeding values for all these deer that we caught by also catching their offspring and catching, and and so we every deer that those ear notches, Randy DeYoung and and masa Anishi, uh, uh, is the was the PhD student who worked at AM and Kingsville, and this is well beyond me. They're way smarter than me. I just was a good fortunate to to get the acquire some of you know to be a part of the study with these guys so we would uh you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years uh being dumped into this matrix and if not thousand let me rephrase that thousands and thousands of years being dumped into these matrix and then these matrix would automatically come out and go okay this guy's related to that guy that guy's related oh this is the son of that guy this is the you know cousin etc cetera, etc cetera, right and all of those get crunched out by supercomputer and all their magic that they do and we get a breeding value and and that breeding value kind of looks like a zero to negative forty and a zero to positive forty, right? It's kind of like a up and down graph, and it's an x y graph, right? And it's think of a scatter plot, if you will. Um, and all these dots get dropped on this scatter plot and and it tells you that, okay, that deer has a breeding value of plus ten. What does that mean in the real world? That means that that buck his offspring will on average be 10 inches better than the average offspring for that generation. So the average offspring in South Texas is let's say 125. The buck that has a plus 10 breeding value on average will have an offspring that is 135 inches because it's 10 plus the average, okay? That also goes down to negative 40 or negative whatever, right? So it goes the scale goes up and down. So as we did that we found that these bucks weren't following a pattern that the largest antler bucks in general had better breeding values, but not so strong that it would been influenced, that, that it influenced future generations. That's a tough one. But I guess a good example of that would be um, that the really cream of the crop, after all of these thousands of bucks that we found, if we'd said every buck that had plus 20 or better, right, of breeding value, let's let's isolate them and let's see what they look like. Those bucks ranged from 125 inches, B and C, actually themselves, all the way up to about 195, 190, you know, we didn't catch any 200s on this particular, what we caught a couple 190s. So they ranged that far. So you tell me, how do i go out in the woods and determine which 125 inch buck had the high, higher breeding value than the other 125 inch buck and i need to shoot that one and let that one go how do i do that and there were enough of them down in the 120s and 130s and 140s that they would they influence you can't just keep the very top corner top right corner of this and say oh i'm only going to keep the 180s and up or the 160s and up Well, it it goes the other way, too. So let's say we're only going to keep the 160s. Well, there were 160 class deer that went all the way down into the negative 20 breeding value. So there's enough noise. The takeaway here is there's enough noise in that breeding value determination that you can't just depend on antlers, the phenotype, as a way to look at the bucks and say, that's a big buck. He's got big antlers. His offspring will undoubtedly be big. Let him go, let him breed. And we're better off for it in the future. Um, that, that may very well be true. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm saying it's not strong enough to outweigh everything else. And a good way to, to, to I guess what I'm saying is, let me ask you a question. Brian, why don't we call females? for generational antler improvement
0: <laughs> well, female just, does right? right right yeah you just i don't we can't call see the potential there yeah there's no All way right, to well, see it
1: what i just told you is that it's because we don't see the antler we don't see antlers on females to know what they're going to pass for it right well you, so you can't determine which females produce the best antlered offspring right Well, what I just told you is true for males with antlers, the bucks with antlers. So the previous breeding value story that I just told you showed the same thing for bucks, right? Remember that the antler genetic side of the inheritance, is that's the word I'm looking for. Sorry for the stutter. The inheritance of antlers from antlers from offspring, I'm sorry, from sire to offspring is only about 40% once they hit, you know, four or five years old. 40% 40% of a buck's antlers can be attributed to his father, his sire, right? That means the other 60% is due to what we call environmental factors. And environmental factors could mean everything from, was he born in a drought year? Was he born in a rain year? Has he lived in drought his whole life? Was his mother a good milk producer? So forth, so on. How hot is it that particular year? I mean, what it, was it? Is the habitat that he lives in good? What's his nutritional level, et cetera, et cetera. So 40% can be explained. And that number goes way down the younger the deer gets. So as you get to be a three, two and yearling, um, that number keeps going down. So as a yearling, it's like, I think it's like 10 or 15% uh, of the yearlings antler size can be attributed to its male, its, 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 its sire. And that means the other 85% is all environmental. So which... The short of that is is that that's a very bad indicator to try to pick a breeder on the cattle industry let's put it that way, would never accept such such numbers to pick a breeding bull the, and, and yet we as hunters, and granted this is new information and people don't know it, but we consistently believe that because that big deer has an, a, a bit that big antler deer has big antlers, his offspring will thus also have big antlers. And what this study showed is that could be the case, but it won't be the case often enough to change the entire genetic makeup of your property. Okay, That's a lot to swallow. And I apologize right now to all your listeners, because they're all going to either turn the podcast off right now, or they're going to have to rewind that three times. And I'm apologizing. It was, it was longer and harder than I wanted
0: it to be. So. I no, apologize. but no, no, not at all. It, I, I mean, basically, what it boils down to is you just you, you can't you can't look at a buck and and predict whether his offspring is going to be above average, below average, or. Yeah, I should have just said that average. and just dropped it. That you're right. That was well. No, no. Video. I'm glad you, you brought in. <laughs> <laughs> you determined all that. Just trust me, <laughs> but, everybody. But yeah, the the take home is you, you know you're just not going to do it. And then, like you said, you add in the the doe side of things, and, and you definitely can't uh, predict which one there is going to produce a better quality offspring. Go ahead, I see you. Yeah, let,
1: yeah. Let's make a distinction here, and and I need to make two distinctions. I'll, uh, but first, let's. I'm talking about free ranging deer, or at least deer, and unless you know, it depends on your definition. But like that 3,500 acres of the intensive pasture was completely high fenced, and we couldn't do it there. So. Large acreage deer, let's let's rephrase it to that, large acreage deer. Now, there's deer breeding facilities all over the South and all over the the nation that are absolutely doing, producing better quality genetic deer from one generation to the next. But they have full control. They know what the sire does. They know what the dam does. And more importantly, that 60% of environmental factors that I said is convoluting, the the breeding value of the deer that we captured and we talked about is almost nullified to nothing in a deer pen, where all of their feed is poured out of a bag. They they don't have to chase be chased by coyotes or wolves or anything else in a deer's range. There everything is taken care of for them, so that diminishes that environmental effect to to to, to almost nothing or very little to where the genetic effect is then again the greatest factor. And, and so that's one thing. So I have a lot of people come to me, well then if all your data is true, then why does deer pens work? Well that's the <laughs> reason right there I'm You're telling right. you. And and I get a lot of that. And that's a very fair question. And 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 then people should ask that. So the other thing is is let's be really clear when we I need to define culling and we should have done this to begin with. We're not talking about culling to reduce the number of mouths that a place has uh, or, or and to get a place below carrying capacity. That, and, and I'm not, and that, that's a good form of culling. Let's say you're above carrying capacity or you need to reduce the doe numbers, et cetera, et cetera. By all means, we're not, uh, we're saying, yeah, do that, that's a good thing. That is a population cull. What we're talking about is culling for the purpose of genetic improvement. And that's the culling. I want to define that now uh, because a lot of some of your listeners will not. If if we didn't make that distinction, that might be confusing. Let's put it that way.
0: Yep, yep. That's a, that's a good point. And I was actually going to ask you here in a minute if there was ever a, a time to cull aside. You know, we've we've already discussed the the genet, genetic aspect of it, and that you're not going to influence that part of it. But yeah, as you just touched on, I guess. You know, there are times when when culling may make sense.
1: Look, yeah, the majority of your listeners in the southeast are going to have to call and they're going to do it because they have, you know, look, you look at Georgia, Mississippi and, you know, a few of the places that I know some numbers from, you know, your fawn crops are like 85, 80 percent a year on average. And that can be 100 something. And, you know, if you got a 65 percent fawn crop, everybody's crying and moaning about it uh, because it was a terrible year guess what? Yeah. You're going to have to call. You're going to have to call probably does. I mean, absolutely does. And maybe you have to get into the buck herd. It's some, depending on your scenario and et cetera. But you look at me in deep Western South Texas, I average 60, 63% fine crop over the years. And when I get a really good one, it's above, you know, it's in the eighties. And when I get a really bad one, again, year 2011 comes to mind, I had a single-digit fawn crop. So on a place my size, uh, when I get an 8% fawn crop versus a 70% fawn crop, think of it as somebody snapping their fingers and and instantly 2,000 deer are gone because they weren't born. And uh, and so I have a hole in my age class. I have a cohort. I have a hole in my cohort. I have a hole in the age class. So... The idea of culling down here for populations is very different and almost foreign to or 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 not necessary, maybe a way to put it, versus you, the the southeast or the rest of the whitetail range where those fawn crops are very high and dependable, then you're gonna have to call for population density.
0: Yeah. So okay, you you've been at this now said so I guess for thirteen, fourteen years, I guess, since this since this study started. For this study, yeah. Do, <laughs> do you think? During that time, have have you seen any indication that, that hunters are coming around to this, to the fact that that culling is ineffective at improving genetics?
1: Yes, we we have a uh, a um, a popular underground following. <laughs> That's a good way to put. You know, we're we're uh, we're gaining some ground on people and fire camp talks and chat boards and and. I've done a couple other podcasts that you know Bronson Strickland's and 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 we've done a few articles and we've done a TV show with uh, Mossy Oak and those type of things, right? So we're 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 slowly getting it out there. We're currently uh, Charlie DeYoung is writing the Journal of Wildlife Management uh, manuscript on this study, and then after that's done, and but that should be done in a, I would think within the year, I hope, um, and then. After that, uh, I plan on writing a popular book about this study that's more digestible for the layperson and 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 has all this stuff we're talking about and m- much more. So we hope to swing the pendulum. You know, uh, uh, this this talk, this got started, frankly, because of Kerr Wildlife Management Area and their studies in the 70s. So this debate has really been burning for almost 50 years, if not better. There's so much misinformation and there's so much guesswork at it that we really feel that our we feel a duty to uh get out the this hard evidence that we found and and then you do what's right for you but at least you're armed with the knowledge of what we know,
0: right? And and I ask that because it does seem to me like uh, on you know on social media, I, I in my job with. Uh, NDA. Uh, I'm on social media a lot, and uh, it does seem like you know when the topic of culling comes up, and of course we share a lot of articles about the topic and stuff. That that more people than not have have figured out at this point that you know it's not going to improve the the genetics of the herd. You, you see more people repeating that. You still have. You know, there's still a stronghold out there that just wants to, like you said earlier, just they just want to believe it. You know, maybe they've done some on their property and they think they've seen results from it, and and so uh, there's definitely. Well, I
1: always have a saying for those, you know, that that those those guys are, you know, their 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 mantra in life is, "I wouldn't have seen it if I hadn't believed it." So, uh, and and if that's the approach you're going to take about calling, well, then there's nothing I can say or show you that will ever convince you otherwise. And, right. and that's fine. You bought the land or you bought the lease and you do, you, know, you do what you want, buddy. It's all good.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, I do have, there's a couple of things I meant to ask you and kind of missed out. So I'm going to jump back on two quick things here. One one was about the, um, y- your method of, of capturing, uh, which is pretty unique to me. You know, I guess, uh, it, it's a Texas thing or, or a, at least yeah. a Southern thing. but. Uh, did you see much in the way of of mortality from that? You know, chasing these animals question. down with a helicopter and using the the nets that way. No,
1: that's a, that's a great question. Yes, we did have mortality, um, but it was really limited. Um, it's less than one percent. It was, it was it may have okay. been less than a half percent, if I remember right. Um, and uh, but it was there, um, and inevitably, you know, sometimes it happened on a big buck or a this buck with great potential or, you know, it just broke your heart. Like, oh my gosh. But, um, and it came in varying ways. Uh, but for the most part, you know, if you could accept a half percent, uh, more capture myopathy is what we'd call it. Um, if you could accept that. Um, we would, it, 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 it's pretty acceptable considering we caught, we had 11,000 captures. you know? So, um, that was, that was, it, it was, you got. I always have phrases here too that you know. You got to break a few eggs to make the omelet, and unfortunately, right, exactly. uh, that, that that's the case in the, in this scenario.
0: Yeah, and I, I would encourage anybody listening to this, and it may be other locations, but I know at least Mossy Oak has a video out there uh, that that features some of some of these captures and stuff, some of the work that you guys were doing, and it, it's amazing to watch and and just see how that works. So,
1: yeah, I think uh, it's on their Mossy Oak Go app. Yeah. You, you know, and it's called the culling effect.
0: Okay. Yep. So if, if you're listening and that interests you, yeah, check that out. It's it's uh it's fascinating stuff. But the the only other question I had was with that intensive culling area, you know, I guess it's been six years or so now since since you stopped culling in there. Did did the mm-hmm. population rebound? Is it is it kind of back to normal at this point? Or
1: yeah, it has. We have a fairly healthy five and Six-year-old age class in there, and then everybody below that's pretty strong. I mean, if you asked to go out and shoot a seven-year-old or older buck in there, it'd be tough to find, (laughs) you know. But I we we just have watched those cohorts grow up, so I kind of really know how old they truly are. Uh, We we've had our eyes on those guys for so long, and we have some really good bucks in there. I mean, to the point that we joke about it, like, ah, that color really works, doesn't it? You know, when you get them, you know, and and. And, and, and again, the only reason I say that is because there's so many of these human responses that whatever reason you really do want the calling to work. I mean, it's very human to have this, uh, this, this desire to say, oh, look, I, I, I did good today. I killed this and took him off and I did this and that and All look right. at the results. So it's a, it's a, you're not only fighting past Studies history, dogma, if you will, at some level, but you're also fighting your own emotional state as a hunter and your desire to do good, and even a conservationist. I it, I know that sounds contradictory, but as a conservationist, to do good to the next generation that's coming, right, and if yeah. you feel that oh, if I can do this, the next generation will be better, and then that may be from doe harvest to taking out you know said spike that's supposedly so bad, um, and and what I've told people, and you know, one of the funny things that my, I, I did a talk at the Texas Wildlife Association several years ago, and my wife was in the audience, and had this guy sitting beside me, or sorry, sitting beside her, and uh, and at the end, you know, I kind of he, you he just you could just see he was really befuddled and didn't quite know what to make of it all, and he just kind of he didn't know it was my wife, and he leans over and he goes, "Man, so it doesn't work. We can't tell what breeds what. Well." what the hell are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? You know, he just, he walked away just wide eyed and confused. And I felt really bad about that. I, well, you know, I felt that it was kind of a failure on my part as a given the speech. And so ever since then I try to end all these things with, or, you know, at least mention it that, listen, this is to me as a land manager and wildlife biologist, this is liberating information. I no longer have to fret about, let's say this big six point that is seven or eight years old. I can't kill him. He's a ghost. And I know he's out there breeding every doe in sight, right? <laughs> I no longer fret about that. And 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 on the other side of that coin, I've got a 190 or, or better. And, uh, and I'm no longer just overly concerned. I'm obviously concerned that he doesn't get eaten by a coyote or struck by lightning or shot prematurely, but I'm no longer overly concerned that, oh, he has to live X number of years. So he keeps breeding and putting those genes back into the the pool. Right. So those two ends of the spectrum kind of just drop, excuse me, drop away. And you just manage the herd as best you can from a nutritional standpoint, habitat management standpoint, and let Deer get old, bucks and deer in general, just get old and reach their potential. And you'll be happy with those results. But stop worrying about these outliers that you think you have to get rid of or to save. And it should really just kind of take a weight off your shoulders in that sense. And that's the way I've looked at it as a manager. I still worry about individual deer. I've got big ones out there right now that I'm worried that a mountain lion doesn't jump him the next time he goes to a cattle trough. It scares the heck out of me. And he's only four or five years old and I need to let him live a few more years, you know, uh, but that's, that's never going to change. But I don't worry about that six year, that six point that I couldn't get shot this year and that he's going to breed every doe in the region. And all I'm going to have is six point saw in that area. I don't worry about that at all because it doesn't come. It's not true. So
0: anyway. Well that's a good way to wrap it up right there. just uh, one less thing to worry about put put head <laughs> out of your mind and like you said, focus on the things you can control so uh Donnie, I, I can't uh I can't say enough about uh coming on here and, and talking with us um, been super interesting and and I certainly appreciate your time.
1: my pleasure, Ryan, and, and anytime you want to do it again, uh please give me a call and, and uh appreciate everybody listening and all that so thank you
0: absolutely maybe there'll be one less person this year <laughs> head out into the woods worrying about the, that, the genetics on their property so
1: yeah if we get that done we, we've we done our <laughs> job here <today>. Good. <laughs> one, right. one at a time one at yeah, a time that's
0: all that's okay. right all right guys that concludes our interview with donnie drager uh, thanks so much for checking out this episode of the deer season 365 podcast if you haven't already please consider subscribing to the show you know you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen to, uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Uh, or you can just go to Dearassociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us. Uh, Climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to uh, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can become a member and don't forget about that podcast promo code that we talked about at the beginning of the show. To get you a little bit of a discount on an annual membership and that free nda hat so be sure to take advantage of that and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of of free content right there on our website covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots habitat improvement um, deer management you name it Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related we got some good content right there on our website available to you so Check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.